0: So this is an interesting way to record a podcast. I'm Peter Schorsch, uh, the host. Uh, joining me is my my co-host, Jared Moskowitz. Jared, I think you know where I'm at. I'm in the waiting room uh, while Michelle is in surgery. Uh, so I this is this is a little bizarre. Uh, I'm a little startled. So I'm going to depend on you to kind of carry us today.
1: Oh, it's dedication. And in a way it's your own little personal state of emergency. Uh,
0: it is, uh, you know, but Michelle actually like she insisted on it. Like it was kind of like that scene from Rocky 2 when Talia Shire, like a wakes up and she tells uh, Rocky to go win the heavyweight championship of the world. Like Michelle was just like, go record that podcast with Moskowitz. Um, so it's pretty inspiring. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I don't know what to think about that actually, but, but I'm glad that I can, I can be your Rocky metaphor. (laughs) Uh,
0: Joining us um, right now, let's get him in. He was generous with his time is um, from the panhandle representative Jay Trumbull, uh, who is the chair of the house appropriations committee. Good morning, rep. How are you? The man with the money. I'm doing well, Peter. I, I, and to Jared's point, what dedication? I can't,
2: it's impressive that, that you're doing this in a waiting room at a hospital, but uh, hopefully everything uh, goes well with Michelle today. Uh, is this one of the last surgeries that's, that's needed?
0: We're hoping that this is the final one. Uh, everybody has followed along. She's got an ileostomy bag, and so we're hoping that, that gets our, the surgery today is re- to reverse that out. It's three months after the first surgery, so she's had quite an ordeal this uh, summer and fall but she's excited to try, you know, to get back to normal. She keeps saying to just make herself whole. Um, It's, I want to put a shout out while I got it. It's not me that's impressive. I will say it's, it's really been the team, like offline right now is our producer, Phil Ammon. You know, we're at like 19 reporters now. Um, We even have like, like we have a reporter in Citrus County, uh, Mike Wright, who wrote the Chronicle. we added reporters in South Florida. It's really been the team That This isn't just a plug for advertisers. People don't say it enough. You know, the people that support our work, our advertisers, the people, you know, that that I do business with, um, they've been fantastic because they've kept the empire, you know, going. And I think we've done a pretty good job covering a lot of state government and a lot of local stuff. And so I'm just, you know, I'm overwhelmed with everyone in the process, whether it be their support, prayers, et cetera. So um, yeah, so that's where I'm at today. Wow. Well, that's very All nice right, so you you're doing it. That's very nice, right, okay. Rep- I've got my good first snarky question for Representative Trumbull.
1: Oh, good, uh, I, I promised him no snarky questions. So I appreciate, uh, I'm gonna deliver on that.
0: <laughs> what is it gonna be like when, um, sometime in March, when you're no longer funny? and i mean that by right now you could tell a joke about anything and i guarantee you there is an appropriations lobbyist who is going to laugh at it what are you going to do in, in the last week in march uh well, when so you're I'm not a
2: yeah yeah i'm super used <laughs> to not being funny so i just go back to uh to you know to not to making jokes that don't make sense um you know listen i mean i i've got i got two kids i got one on the way that that's uh uh, will be born actually the first day of session or early scheduled to be born january eleventh. um that's cool and uh it's yeah. so you know we'll have we'll have three kids uh four years and and younger um so you know i' I'm, I'm pretty sure that my wife is gonna be very excited that I get to come home and my businesses will be happy too that I get to spend a little bit more time but you know I mean the reality is is that it it's been it is interesting how you know you're prettier when you're in Tallahassee, especially when you have a great uh assignment. Uh, your, your jokes are much funnier. People, um, like to listen, but, um, at the end of the day, you know, uh, it, I I think I'll transition
1: quite well. Jay, not since you've been chairman, uh, but obviously since you've been in the house, I mean, how much has the Florida budget grown, uh, since, uh, since you got there? I mean, it's gotta be, I don't know, maybe, is it close to $10 billion?
2: Yeah, it's actually a little bit more than that I think one of my first but well a little more than 10 billion I think our first budget was around 85 87 billion um and now you know we're over 100 so um it's it pretty amazing you know that it's grown in that period of time you know so exponentially
1: what what do you attribute? that too? I mean, I mean, the simple answer is we could say, oh, you know, business opportunity growing, but I mean, what, when you look at the budget, cause you're, you're really in the details. I mean, what do you, what do you attribute that, that significant growth to?
2: I mean, I think you, you can attribute a mo- the majority of that growth over the, over this, these last two years to be a healthcare, uh, the large driver is healthcare. Um, but, you know, I mean, as far as and, and, and so a lot of those dollars are federal dollars that have come down that that's grown the entire the entire budget but you know as our state grows so does all the services and the and the needs across our state so you know whether that's healthcare or education or you know transportation a lot of those things you know have have grown um you know a, a, a lot and you know i mean as as our state grows you know there's a lot of payers in our state but you know, there's a lot of people that that still, you know, require, you know, state um, support as it relates to, to insurance and Medicaid and other things.
1: How much, I mean, no, no different than the federal budget, obviously, we have to pass a balanced budget, the feds don't, but but how much right now of the hundred hundred billion plus dollars is baked in? Like, how much discretionary money is there to go do the things that the state needs on a yearly basis, projects, things of that nature, but how much of it is just not available because that's already baked into things that we have to pay for commitments that we've made.
2: Yeah. So essentially the budget uh, is, is a third federal trust fund, a third trust fund and a third GR. Uh, So, you know, GR is what we have, you know, the the most discretion with. Um, So, you know, it's, it's around 30 some 30 to $40 billion in that range. Uh, So that's where we get to spend, you know, uh, get to, get to, by projects and um, and other things like that. So that, but but over you know two thirds of the budget um, is stuff that's pretty much baked in and has a de- and has a dedicated funding source to something.
1: Yeah, understanding obviously that you know you have a counterpart in the Senate and the Speaker has priorities. The Senate President has priorities. So does the governor. I mean, what do you when you're looking at this year's budget? What do you think the priorities for investment? need to be, and or savings, quite frankly, you know, putting money away for a rainy day?
2: Yeah, so, you know, this year's different than last year. I mean, I think everybody thought last year, you know, as we were going into the budget cycle, that it was going to be a really tough year that we were up against a $3 billion shortfall, you know, from a GR perspective. Um, and then, you know, as the state opened back up, we we had some, you know, we were, we were meeting uh, well over the estimates, we were beating the estimates as far as receipts are concerned. And you know the federal federal uh, stimulus money was was helpful to get us out of that time frame as well. Um, so you know everybody last year was just happy with what we with what whatever you got right because I think that the thought was well, there's not going to be much. This year is very different. This year estimates are showing you know a tremendous amount seven billion dollars you know more um, and and so I think everybody has a much different mentality about what. You know, what we can ask for, what we may need, you know, this, that, and the other. And and I think my goal to balance all those things out, and to your point, Jared, about you know, having a rainy day fund, you know, three 3.9% of our budget is what what I believe is a healthy reserve. And that's 3.9% of the entire budget. Um, and so a billion dollars in the state's rainy day fund does not suffice like it did, you know, 10 years ago. Um so we've got to make sure that you know not only do we spend well within our means but that we also have a tremendous amount of resources uh tremendous amount of resources that we keep back for you know for 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 unseen circumstances great example a global pandemic you know uh, our state was fiscally healthy when when coronavirus reared its its ugly head early on and when we were having to you know float cash you know, for for a pretty good amount of time uh, before the before we were able to get some reimbursements. You know, we were able; the state of Florida was able to do that, whereas other states, you know, were not in the same position. Uh,
0: so, if I if I'm reading you right, the headline out of this podcast is Appropriations Chair uh, insisting on you know major uh, reserves coming out of this budget. North, I mean, if you're talking at three point nine percent. So let's just say four percent of a hundred billion dollar budget. You want something like four billion dollars going into the rainy day fund. My is my FSU math adding up there? <laughs> yeah, remember I went to Auburn, so my math's a little a little worse. But uh, uh, but yeah, that that's correct. That's gonna you know that's gonna scare a lot of folks uh, who were hoping that they had like you said. You know, we keep reading the articles that oh. Um, Revenues are it, the, every time the revenue estimating uh, folks uh, go and meet, they come back out and say, "Oh, we got three hundred million dollars more than we thought we were going to get." So that's going to that's going to uh, tighten up some uh, some people's sphincters um, <clears throat> who are maybe hoping that that money is going to be there.
2: Yeah, you know, the other thing is is as those estimates continue or as we continue to to grow past the estimate. You know, one thing we we fail to realize is that you know the Medicaid population is continuing to increase, and you know a lot of those things, you know, because of of the coronavirus pandemic, those folks um, are staying on the rolls for a, for a year before they're recounted as as com, you know compared to years past where they would maybe do those counts sooner, um, you know, if that person was able to get a job or this that and the other. So you know that that's a large driver for. Uh, for GR as well, um, to to make sure that we balance, you know, the amount of reimburse or the amount of dollars that we put towards Medicaid as compared to you know the reimbursement.
0: So there are some uh, state representatives who uh, who like a lot of attention. Um, you may know, like like let's just use an example. Like Jared Moskowitz uh, loves getting his name in the paper, uh, loves getting attention, and then there's folks like you who. Um, who really kind of eschew the the I don't want to say the press, but you're not a you're not a headline grabber. Um I I bring this up to say like, you know, budget chair people can sometimes they can be a little difficult. Uh JD Alexander, you know, basically ran the legislature for the years that he was Senate budget chief. You seem like you're not taking that approach uh, to your credit. Um different style different approach there on what you see as a as a lawmaker
2: yeah yeah it's it's different strokes for different folks i mean that's not my personality at all i mean i am much more laid back um yes i do get intimately involved in in every decision as it relates to the budget but you know i also realize peter that you know i got this position because of the relationship that i have with the speaker and you know it's is you know it isn't i'm not the speaker of the of the house right i'm not i'm just i'm just the appropriations chair so whatever role for that role i'm going to fulfill it the best i possibly can and and no i'm not a guy that goes out there and and gets a bunch of headlines um but uh you know i mean and 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 that's just kind of the way you know i've been like i'm a i'm a terrible politician when it comes to social media i don't tweet I don't use Facebook very well at all. Uh, I don't, you know, if you go through Instagram, it's pretty much pictures of me and my kids. Um, that's, you know, so, so I just have a, a much different approach to that. The good news is that the outcome is pretty much the same. I mean, yes, JD, everybody knows, you know, JD Alexander was, you know, uh, a very difficult, um, uh, appropriations chair in the Senate to deal with. But, um, but, you know, I mean, we're we're still able to get everything we wanted to get done for the most part. And, um, and, you know, working with my counterpart in the Senate, I mean, Kelly's the same way. You know, she's not a she's not a headline grabber at all, either.
1: I love hearing uh, Republicans, Republican chairs saying, oh, this one was difficult. Try being a Democrat. Uh, going, going to a Republican chair, trying to get stuff in the budget. But, but no, I mean, look, Jay, uh, Jay and I served together for a period of time, not when he was chair of appropriations, uh, but, but was still, he was still involved in the appropriations team. And then I was the director, uh, obviously trying to get stuff, uh, in the budget when he was chair. Uh, and so, I mean, one of the things about being budget chair, unlike uh, any other committee is there's only one thing the legislature has to do constitutionally and that's pass a budget we don't have to pass bills at all, but we have to constitutionally pass a budget. And quite frankly, obviously the amount of democratic policy bills that gets heard fluctuates from year to year but it's somewhere between I don't know four to 8%. Right it's a it's a small amount of policy bills if when you're a democrat filing in the legislature, but the budget is where democrats. Can have, in my opinion, the largest impact, or the minority in the Democrats or in the minority. The minority can have the largest impact, and actually, that was one of the early lessons uh, that I was taught when I got there as a freshman: um, was to to go learn the budget, get yourself on the committee, uh, because that's how you can, as a as a Democrat in the minority, that's how you can improve your community. Uh, by making sure the things that are important uh, to your district and to your county and to other bigger issues uh, that we're investing in those in those things. And, and uh one thing that the budget chair, unlike, again, other chairs have to do is I'm willing to bet that the appropriations chair meets with more members of the minority party than probably any other chair for that exact reason, because many, many Democrats know that their bills aren't getting heard. So going and meeting with the chair of the committee isn't gonna matter if if the bill doesn't get agended, uh, if it's not gonna get heard. But going and seeing the budget team, I mean, that's something that starts very early on. And it's fun to watch the budget team, Peter. Jay's in a happy mood now, he's jovial. Yeah, wait, could talk to Jay 48 hours before the budget it, you know, the, the budget committees, the joint committees are meeting and they're swapping things back and forth. And he's, he's only sleeping like three hours a day.
2: Yeah, that, that is, uh, you know, I, I was joking with my wife about this. I said, you know, uh, would love for y'all to, you know, want y'all to spend more time in Tallahassee, you know, this session, this, that, and the other. And she says, she said to me, she said, why? She said, you go to work at like eight o'clock in the morning when you're in Tallahassee. And then you come home at like two 30 in the morning and then you go back to work at eight. And so, you know, I said, well, you know, it is just nice to know that y'all are here, but that, that really is the the reality uh, as we're, as we go through, you know, the, the budget and it's, everybody's happy and everybody's got all their asks and this, that, and the other, then it's crunch time towards, you know, the very end to get this thing out in a timely manner. Um, and no, you do not sleep very much, but I tell you what, you know, Peter, just like on the on at the onset, when you were talking to, you're uh, talking about your team. I'm going to tell you what, there is no better group of people than the appropriation staff uh, in the House. Um, I'm, you know, similar to the Senate, but those folks in the House with their knowledge and their ability to, you know, to, to help you weed through issues and help, help us, you know, navigate and, cra- and craft uh, the best budget we possibly can for the state. You know, is is really remarkable to do that year after year after year. And you know, my my budget chief is Eric Pridgen, who's been in the process for a long, long time, uh, and has become one of my super close friends. But you know that that guy is uh, is fantastic. And, yes, he's, you know, he's very good could not at saying do it without him,
1: he's very good at saying no. Or maybe that was just well, that was my just experience. because you were asking, right? Yeah. I figured, I figured that's what the answer was going to be. Well, um, let's
0: let's get into the weeds a little bit, just because I mean, the people that listen to this podcast our uh, weed whackers and like to hear some of the stuff jay i want to know is there like i love the word sprinkle like it's like my favorite time i basically know that when that sprinkle list comes out that's just all of my friends getting you know like their their pet projects funded it's it's basically christmas for uh you know appropriations lobbyists or hanukkah is it, it could be hanukkah or, or hanukkah yes if there's eight days of it um Is there eight days of sprinkle? Can you imagine? (laughs) Could we do that? Um, By the way, speaking totally this, and this is why I love this podcast. So we did the 23 and me and we uh, found out that um, I've got a little bit of, um, I think it's like
1: Ashkenazi Jewish in me. Uh, Ashkenazi. We'll work on that. We'll work on that.
0: Ashkenazi. And so Ella is ecstatic because she now is like oh i get hanukkah presents and i'm like that's not how this works i mean like you're you're gonna have to pick a pick a team here and and go with it either santa or the or the the menorah but you're not getting a whole month's worth of presents you'll have Um, to
1: you'll have to explain to her where the old testament stops and the new testament picks up and why they diverged
0: (laughs) a little bible study um is there a, is there another like cool word like sprinkle that I can start using all of the time that you guys, like, can you educate us a little bit on a fun term that I just, I want to be able to use this next session? Oh goodness. Fun. Uh, uh, no, but I mean, I, I, I hate it when they call it
2: sprinkle. I just, we, we try to get everybody to say supplemental, but, um, but, but yeah. And I don't think eight days would work Jared. Uh, that would be, that'd be kind of tough, uh, to do. We would probably the pot would have to be a little larger to make that happen.
0: Is there um, like, this is a question I do ask a lot of folks when like I asked, I remember I asked uh, Corcoran this, Um, you know, we know who the top firms are and all that stuff. Is there somebody in the lobby core, you know, that kind of impresses you basically with their knowledge uh, I'm not looking for you to like, say who the best lobbyist is or anything like that. I'm just like, but is there any, are there are a couple folks in the process or even staff folks, um, that impress you, um, especially during that last couple of weeks that keep their heads about them and all that stuff.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's a few people, I mean, I, I use this example pretty frequently, um, Peter, that, that Ronnie book it, uh, so, uh, amazes me. I mean, this is a guy that, you know, was a Democrat lobbyist, um, you know, for forever and um is is probably one of the better folks at navigating you know the process in general but specifically the budget um that guy uh knows you know when 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 to to meet when to bring his clients around and when to ask and this kind of and those kind of things but uh i'm super impressed with with his ability now he's been doing it for a really long time but um but you know even those folks that have been doing it for a really long time don't do it uh, the same way that he does it um so that you know that's that's really really you know impressive and even people like you know you kind of compare that to you know some agency staff now there's a little bit more turnover there but you know agency staff doesn't seem to navigate the budget nearly as well as you know as a ronnie or or some of these other top uh um, top firms do
1: all right well getting out of the weeds of the budget um you know, I wanted to turn you know back a little bit. I mean, we just had the three-year anniversary of of Hurricane Michael. Um, you know, this is an area that not you don't just represent, but you live. Um, I, I actually remember not being able to get a hold of you for for a period of time uh, when 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 that came through and and working with you because the the governor and myself came in in January, just a couple months on uh, and, and working on the recovery with you how how is the panhandle recovering how are things going you know is everything being done that the panhandle needs um uh, you know what what lessons do you think we've learned uh from from a hurricane michael
2: um so so first jared you know point of personal privilege here uh i, I want to tell you specifically thank you um you know, I, I realize that you took two years uh plus out of your life to uh to to be the director of emergency management, but you know, take COVID out of the equation. You, you focused on Hurricane Michael um a tremendous amount and and I attribute the majority of our rebuilding success uh to you and what the governor has done, but but you didn't forget about us and you know from a little town uh, you know, in Northwest Florida, you know, um, you made sure that we were getting answers from, from FEMA and, you know, and obviously there was a significant, uh, amount of, of, of resources coming from the state, but, but I, I really, you know, from the bottom of our, my heart to, and, and as well as, you know, folks that live here, um, thank you. You know, was, it was, it does not go unnoticed the amount of, of support that you've given us. And, and, and so, and I pre- very much appreciate that as, as well as your friendship. But uh, to talk about, you know, w- what our rebuild has looked like, you know, you kind of, you, you step back and you look at, you know, as, you know, as this three year anniversary has come about last weekend, you know, you go back and you look at some pictures and some of that stuff's kind of hard to look at. Um, and, and in that moment, you think we should just move. I mean, there's no way this place is coming back. Like, this is a, it, we're in a really bad spot. Uh, infrastructure is completely depleted. There are no trees anymore. You know, every house is messed up. Uh, you know, people are homeless. You know, th- th- there's just, th- didn't seem like there was a path forward. Um, then, after you figure, after you kind of get over that stuff, you know, you can see how the wheels start turning, how these resources start coming in. And and how you know people really bound together, and it was a, a really beautiful experience to to be a part of. This place has done extraordinarily well given the circumstances. You know, October tenth happens. You know, within a short period of time, most of the debris has been removed. Um, you know, infrastructure still still an issue, and we're not growing trees back. You know, in a, uh, exped- expeditiously. We are planting them, but obviously it takes a little bit of time to grow a, uh, a massive oak tree. But um, you know, our schools back up, got it, got back open quickly. The, the restaurants, the grocery stores, businesses, um, and, and people, but we're doing well. I mean, we really are. I mean, the you know, sometimes it requires something like this to revitalize the community. Downtown Panama City is a great example of that uh they've had you know a hundred percent growth downtown panama city of new businesses that have moved in you know post hurricane michael people that weren't there pre-storm um and and you know we've got we're, we're growing as a community and the other thing that's come out of this is you know where it was completely devastating was tyndall air force base but we've been able to secure um multiple missions of f-35s uh we're pretend, we're on the short list of another pretty significant mission but they're you know the the federal government's going to spend uh, about five billion dollars on the rebuild of that base to make it the base of the future and it's a significant impact to our community so you take you know the, the air force side of things to the you know the private industry side of things to you know people just you know building their house and and all the while. We've been dealing with a global pandemic uh, in this rebuild. And, you know, listen, I've said it so many times, there is not a community that is more tough, in my opinion, than this one. Um, to to go through, you know, a place that that literally tears apart every square inch of uh, of the community and then while you're rebuilding that, you know, uh, uh, a global pandemic is tough to overcome, but we've done it really well and taking kind of everything in stride. And it's been, it's been tremendous to be a part of.
1: No, that's good to hear. I mean, I, I remember being there and, and some people saying to me like, Oh, Jared, you're going to spend so much time here. You're going to leave as a Baptist. Uh, <laughs> and, and I, 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 I had to go Wikipedia Baptist for a second, just to see what I was in for. Um, But, you know, and I, I remember kept saying to myself, like, I don't really know anything about the panhandle. I'm a I'm a kid from Broward County. I mean, I'd been to the Panhandle before, but, uh, and and some of the areas that were hit, um, just like any other major event, right? Some of the areas were had extreme poverty beforehand. Uh, and, you know, you became very concerned about how that community is going to recover the I felt like myself like the media had turned the page faster on the storm which hurts recovery because obviously the more pressure more attention the ability to raise money privately charitably, uh, but the resiliency of the people uh, there uh, was Absolutely tremendous. I mean, it was the the pictures that I saw and I was there day one uh, in the private capacity before I became the director. Uh, And it it looked like a mini Katrina. I mean, in many ways, it looked like a mini Katrina, places in Gulf County. I mean, it just, it reminded me of the Mississippi Gulf Coast uh, in in a lot of ways. Uh, But I'm happy to hear uh, that, that things are on track. Uh, that people uh, in the panhandle are are doing better. uh, Because, you know, listen, we really did put everything into it that we could. And look, Homestead took a decade. And I remember telling people that. I remember telling people, this isn't going to be overnight, and and it's going to take a while. And uh, it was a category five storm. And so, um, you know, imagine three, four, five years from now, uh, you're going to see even even a bigger difference, uh, Jay, than, than, than you see now.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't seem like it's going to take us 10 years, but I agree hundred percent with that point. Yeah. Just as the, as the growth of this community continues, you know, uh, as well as the rebuild, you know, it'll be, a it, it'll be a tough, you won't be able to remember what Panama city looked like October 9th of, uh, 2018.
1: That's amazing. Well, so switching to the one of the the other things I wanted to bring up. I mean, you you've now served in in the house this will be your 8th year, so you're you're a senior. Do you think the atmosphere the house was always more ruckus, right? It was always more like a you, you know, this just this jungle of people together yelling and screaming like that was the house atmosphere where the Senate was more like, you know, the United nations where everyone had their own flag and there's protocols and things. But, but do you think the atmosphere in the house has changed? Uh, Do you think, you know, the camaraderie that existed in the house, even after people would disagree and yell, you know, they would, they would still be friendships. Do you you think some of that has disappeared um, over the last several years? I mean, what do you see the the direction of all of that?
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And, you you know, when you and I served together, I do think that it was a little different than it is today. I, I think that, well, last session is a prime is a really good example of of how I think it got off course a little bit from the camaraderie standpoint. So, you know we we have you know we had a lot of new members come in, both Democrats and Republicans, and you know we we didn't have a whole lot of opportunity. It, you know it's it's tough to engage with somebody. You know, when you're with the unknown of of COVID, you're wearing a mask. You're you know, you're not going to see a bunch of people in the offices. This, that, and the other. That, that's something that we you know didn't have to deal with my first six years in the house. Um, but but I tell you, it it changed there towards the end. Sure, there was some things that, uh, and that happens every year, right? Every year there's you know a couple of issues that really gin people up on both sides of the equation, but. Um, you know, for the, for the most part, I do think that, that the House has a, is a very special place where you know Republicans and Democrats can disagree on policy and go have a beer afterwards. One of my best friends in the in the process is Ramon Alexander. You know, the guy. Uh, he and I, for the most part, you know, don't agree on a lot of policy issues, but I really, really uh have enjoyed getting to know him and when i can help him out you know i do when he can help me out he does and 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 i and i want to make sure that that trend continues you know i think that you know you and i were very close in the house um jared and and you know i i do try my very best to make sure that you know that, that we're creating uh, a sense of community within that space of of the floor, and you know regardless of who uh of which side you know um that you sit on but you know i I worry that in some in some scenarios and in some instances you know you've got um some some polar opposites in this process that you know love you know and and to peter's point earlier about grabbing headlines you know i think that that is where we could very quickly shift to if we don't you know Continue to to have a great decorum, and it's not like the Senate, no. You know, I mean we're we are far, far, far from the Senate as far as how you know everybody kind of understands that role and this, that, and the other. But uh, I, I do think that you know some of the be- some of my uh, most fond um, memories and relationships are with are, are with people who are Democrats.
0: All right, Representative Trumbull, I. Um... We know that you are kind of pressed for time, but we appreciate you coming on this one. Hopefully, um, uh, we can get you on maybe uh, once, you know, at the beginning of session. And then absolutely, we're going to, Jared and I are going to come out there and camp outside your office and do the Hanukkah, the eight, eight days, days of, of sprinkle, sprinkle. The eight <laughs> days of sprinkle edition. Um, but we appreciate you coming on today and uh, kind of providing some of some really good insights into a, um, a process that, uh, people may not understand, but obviously at the vault, vo- at the size of the state budget totally impacts every Floridian. Of course. And thank you for having me
2: and P- Peter, uh, hope everything goes well with Michelle today. Um, appreciate you, uh, you having me on and, and doing this in the waiting room of a hospital. That's, uh, that's, <laughs> That's that's a big deal. So thank, thank y'all very much and and very much appreciated you and Jared. All
0: right, Rep. Thanks, Chairman. All right, Jared. See y'all. All right, Jared. I'm literally in a waiting room. So you want to wait around and talk some Florida politics with well, me?
1: Well, I mean, listen. I live near Boca Raton, so I am also in a proverbial waiting room myself. <laughs> waiting um, room joke. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think it was a big week. I mean, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, Val Demings had a big week. We can talk about that. Uh, you know, her race. What does it mean for her? What does it mean for Democrats down the ticket? We can talk about the state of the Democratic primary, uh, Charlie Nikki. I think Charlie had a good week. You know, what does that mean? What's the trajectory of that race? I mean, where do you want to start?
0: I think you have to start with Val Demings. I, I think that it may be the fundraising report of the, three, the third quarter. Uh, it may be the most, I mean, it certainly is in Florida, but I mean, like nationally, um, it's probably the most important fundraising report. Val Demings of Orlando reported raising $8.4 million during the third quarter of 2021. Um, Marco Rubio also raised $6 million, um, but he has gone through a lot more of it. They are, they're only a couple of million dollars apart in cash on hand. But clearly, Val Demings has been able to nationalize the race. She's been able to build a an army of small dollar donors. And just when it was starting to get dark for Florida Democrats, it looks like Val Demings may be, uh, she might be, able. I don't want to say rescue uh, them because God knows Democrats will figure out a way to, to ruin it. But um, she really has positioned herself uh, to, as a savior of the. florida democrats at this point
1: yeah so a, a couple observations so there's no doubt about that 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 she had a tremendous quarter uh i think it's excellent news for her race and for democrats uh you know down the ticket why do you think she's been able to nationalize the race with marco rubio but we're not seeing nikki and charlie being able to do that in the governor's race
0: I think number one is because DeSantis is so strong um, would be the would be the number one thing. Um, I, I think that, you know, I think that people think DeSantis is going to win, um, you know, that he has a, I don't know, maybe a 75, 80% chance of winning. Um, uh, the people that will be donating to a gubernatorial campaign are gonna be statewide interests and they are just not going to, um, they're not gonna get on a list uh, that Ron DeSantis is going to see, and then you know have their priorities, you know, destroyed during the legislative process. Um, you know, it just you're not going to get uh, FPNL. You're not going to get Disney on there. Um, most of those, you know, interests, you know, are just even though they can write unlimited amounts to political committees, they're just not going to go against DeSantis. I think also Demings, you know, I think that she really, really proved herself during the impeachment impeachment trial. So I think that she's got a lot of cachet there. Um, She's a, you know, she's exactly what, you know, Democrats throughout the country want. She's strong on, you know, the impeachment stuff, but she's also strong. You know, she's got the the law and order credentials. So if they're going to be supporting someone, if it's a choice between Val Demings and Adam Schiff, I would go with Val Demings. If it's a choice between Val Demings and AOC, I'm going with Val Demings. And then I will say one final point, which is, I think people smell blood in the water on Rubio. Um, I think that Rubio is, uh, you know, it's not that I don't, I think that he's he's just basically kind of milk milquetoast. Uh, he's not Trumpy enough for the Trump people, and he's not moderate enough for like the Mitt Romney crowd. And so he finds himself in the center of the road, and that's where you get run over. Um, I don't know that a lot of people are going to be out there campaigning for um, for Rubio the same way that they will DeSantis, uh, and so I think that you know Democrats, even though they have everything against them, I think there's a scenario. Listen, Rick Scott only beat Bill Nelson by 11,000 votes. I think they think if you run that same race again, uh, Demings can beat Rubio
1: yeah I mean listen, uh, you know look Dade County is going to play a huge role uh, in, in what happens there. I mean Donald Trump won Dade County and uh, well uh, sorry Donald Trump lost Dade County but the numbers were much closer uh, he got a bigger plurality out of Dade County uh, than we've seen in the past and he won and he won the state in 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 larger numbers now yes he's not on the ballot Marco Rubio. Uh, doesn't have the same relationship uh, that, that Trump clearly has with the Republican Party of Florida. But when I look at what Val did in that quarter, quite frankly, is what that tells me is that there are national Democrats, right, willing to pump tons of money into Florida. Well, if that's the case, then you have to ask yourself the reverse question. Why is that not happening in the governor's race, um, you know, people, if you talk to Democrats, there's this, oh, we got to stop Ron DeSantis, you know, he's running for president, we, we got to stop him now, you know, and, and if that's the thought process, why, why is their money not coming in? Why does it seem to be sitting on the sidelines? And I think, because it is sitting on the sidelines, that they that it Val Demings is, the, is the beneficiary of that, that that is where national Democrats have decided to park their money.
0: Yeah, I, I just I I'm I'm still not happy with Charlie Crist's fundraising. Like, even though you know they try to move it as like formidable or whatever, like six hundred thousand just doesn't seem. I mean, so let's say he's basically doing two million a quarter. Um, you know, him raising twenty five percent of what Val Demings uh, can do, that that just doesn't feel enough. I'm not saying he has to raise anywhere near what DeSantis is raising, who is probably. You know, he's the national, he, other than Trump, he's the second most popular Republican in the country. But he should be raising north of a million per month. Uh, like, I think that that has to be his goal. Nikki Freed, you know, I, you know, and we, this is probably the next subject. Like, it, it just doesn't seem like she's gaining any traction in any of the, you know, kind of um, uh, pro, the silent primary uh, categories. I mean, the endorsements all seem to be going to Christ. and the fundraising. I mean, she's, she's raising less than what candidates running for mayor of St. Petersburg, which is up in a couple of weeks, what they are raising right now, uh, $175,000 for a statewide race. I mean, that doesn't even keep the lights on at the campaign headquarters. And so, you know, I think that, you know, And I've said this to you offline, but like the way Chris is just putting a hammer lock on, you know, black elected officials and leaders. um, And she is getting I mean, she's not she's not matching him. She's getting zero like there isn't a single black elected official that's that's going to go out and endorse her right now. That's 30 percent of the vote. You know, I just don't see her path anymore. And so. Throw this out there. I think you have to start finding a way for Nikki to um, to keep, you know, you can't pressure her out of the race. You don't want to pressure uh, the, you know, the statewide elected official out of the race. But she need there needs to be a narrative where she's faced and somehow maybe runs for re-election for ag commissioner, um, maybe gets picked up by the Biden administration. But at one hundred seventy five thousand dollars a month and really no endorsements. I don't know what she's campaigning. I don't know what she's doing at this point.
1: Yeah, look, I think it's way too early to to start having these, you know, conversations about oh, you know, we need to find her a parachute. I mean, this you said it was the silent primary, and you know what? I hadn't heard that that you were you were making that uh, it, describe a, an area of it. But to be quite honest, the whole primary feels like the silent primary. Uh, it really doesn't seem, in general. To be getting any traction i mean yes if you're a politico and you follow politics i mean there's plenty out there for you to find but if you're if you're not in that group it just right now a year out it seems to not be even on anybody's radar breaking through uh, uh at all and we start these campaigns much earlier than we used to and it gets earlier every single year but it ain't early anymore i mean it's a year uh it's a year away Uh and so, you know, I I you know, I've been wondering to myself, like at what point in time are we gonna see the primary pickup in general? Now, as far as the the nature of the race, I mean there's no doubt that Charlie had an extremely good week. Charlie's a pro, he's been doing this a long time. He this is the slow drip endorsement strategy right you go you lock up all of these endorsements you don't announce them all at once and you slow drip it you create you know what looks like this train has left the station kind of effect and they did that uh they executed that excellent uh this week as far as you know the endorsements of uh, the african-american community i mean why What do you think is happening there? What do you think? I mean, do you think Charlie, who is, we know this, Charlie's trying to create the Joe Biden argument, which is only Joe Biden could beat Donald Trump, only me, someone who's like Joe Biden politically, uh, someone who can appeal to independence, only someone like myself can beat Ron DeSantis. That is the argument. Do you think he's trying to recreate that South Carolina moment that Joe Biden created and lock up black democratic voters? I mean, why do you think they're choosing Charlie and not Nikki?
0: All right. So let's, let's, let's talk about this. Uh, Number one, I think that Charlie has historically run well uh, with black voters, you know, even as a Republican, I mean, this starts with he was, you know, the infamous hug of Obama that cost him so much on the Republican side, he embraced Obama there, you know, he made the you know, he made the precedent creating decision to hold open voting longer uh, while people were in lines during Obama's election. I think that that matters. He appointed the first black Supreme Court justice. Um, you know, he. I think also on a personal level, and this is something that I've seen. You know, his relationships in Saint Petersburg. You know, he grew up and he lives in South St. Petersburg, even to this day. Um, you know, he has relationships with, you know, Daryl Rousson, you know, the next mayor of St. Petersburg, Ken Welch. Um, so many of those folks. This is a politician. This is a white politician that goes to the black churches, um, not when it's campaign season. Like you will see Charlie on the south side of St. Petersburg on a Sunday, you know, in January. And that's something that translates, I think, to a, a statewide level. I'm surprised that he's been able to get as many endorsements, like kind of like the Audrey Gibsons of the world, like that maybe don't have a natural connection to him geographically or something. I'm surprised there. Um, I will disagree with one point that you're going to make, and I, I don't want to be a homer for Charlie. Uh, you know, I keep saying to people, you know, I think Ron DeSantis is going to win. Ron DeSantis has been great for my business. Um, I picked Ron DeSantis to win earlier than almost anybody else in 2018. But I will say this if you Charlie Chris started out with probably a five percent chance to win the governor's race at the beginning of the season, and he needed a couple of things to happen. He needed a really strong um primary performance, and I think he's doing that. And then he also needed Ron DeSantis to go from being a Two to one governor, a sixty-six thirty-three, uh, you know, approval rating governor, to where he is now, which is a you know sub fifty percent approval rating uh, governor uh, who is very divisive. He needed those two things ha- to happen in twenty twenty one, and both of them have happened. And so now I think you do have to say he's probably got a twenty to twenty five percent chance of winning. So I think Charlie is doing the things that he needed to have gotten done this year. Um, it's any given Sunday. He just needs to get to September. And the metaphor I keep using, can the New York giants beat the, uh, new England Patriots, the 18 or 19 and no new England Patriots, you know, on any given Sunday, can they do that? Well, uh, if you run that game 19 times, Tom Brady's going to beat Eli Manning, but there is going to be that one time where Eli Manning throws the pass down the field, the receiver catches it on his helmet. And somehow the Giants are able to beat the Patriots like they did in 2008.
1: So what do you think is different, though? So, you know, I was very involved in the Charlie Crist race against uh, Governor Scott, raised a lot of money, did a, did a lot for for the governor, had him at my my uh, family's house. Well, there it um, is. There's
0: the difference. You're not involved. I mean, well, so they well, got well, rid of... Come on. Well, uh, please, we, always, we always know
1: that's the case. But here, here's my question. <laughs> What's the difference that we were running at that time against a governor who was less popular than Governor DeSantis? His approval rating was in the 40s, in the high 40s. And we were also outmatched by money, which we're going to be way outmatched by money. Um, So what do you think is the difference? I mean, if, if and Democrats uh, outregistered Republicans, which isn't going to be the case in this race. So we're going to have a slightly more popular Republican governor, the, the money is still going to be a major disadvantage, and the Democrats no longer have their registration. So, what do you see in the landscape that you think is different this time?
0: Uh, not much. Uh, I mean, not much good, I should say. Like, let's also not forget that the top of the ballot should probably be a drag on the Democratic. Candidate, other than to say Florida seems to want to zag when everybody else is, you know, zigging. um, Like there's that hope. Um, I do think you will see a nationalization of the race in a different way than you will under Scott versus Christ. I think that this will be a, you know, a warm up uh, to the DeSantis presidential run. Um, I do think you are in a pandemic. I think that I don't think we've ever had um, as substantive uh, policy, um, differences between one party and the other, like in terms of like, you know, the, how you would handle things, which always brings up a point that I like to bring up about Charlie, which is, I don't think that you can out respond, you know, to the pandemic. I, I think you have to present a different style of leadership, a sense of empathy, you know, We have not seen Ron DeSantis take that moment of silence for the, you know, what will, by the time of the election, it'll probably be 75 to 80,000 Floridians dead from the pandemic. Um, Charlie, you know, brings a sense of empathy uh, to it, um, I think. Uh, No, I know he does. I think that that will be a, a big difference. I think a lot of people also, I think let's go back to the top of the the, the discussion Val Demings um, um, makes up for a lot of Charlie's shortcomings, you know, with Val there and with Charlie's like, you know, inherent strength with that constituency, I think you will see a very, very strong turnout from the black uh, Floridian uh, block. I think also with Charlie and Val, you really cannot do the defund the police argument that you did against Gillum. I think that that is a you know that takes off probably i think the biggest handicap against democrats in florida in 2018 and 2020 is this like socialism you know argument i think that that whole like that whole vein goes out the window if it's a deming's christ um um you know kind of ticket there
1: yeah no look there's no doubt that that if val demings continues to replicate what she just created that that there's no doubt that that could be a game changer so long as people come and vote down the, that the people she brings out to come vote for her also continue that down the ticket sometimes people leave and in close elections like we have here in florida uh those under votes um you know sometimes are are significant no listen I, you know, Andrew Gillum had, in my opinion, everything going for him. It was the first time I remember where Democrats were neck and neck in, in dollars. Uh, I mean, he, uh, and, and now we're back to kind of the way it's going to be before where uh, Republicans, uh, whether it's Rick Scott spending his own money or Ron DeSantis raising money nationally, we're going to be uh, at a disadvantage. I will agree with you on this case. I do think at some point in time, the national media is going to turn the spotlight onto this race. And at that point in time, uh, that will have an impact. It had an impact when they spotlighted Florida during the beginning of COVID. In my opinion, they were wrong, you know, showing people on the beaches while Dr. Fauci was telling people go outside, it's okay. Um, you know, they were doing things that I think were incorrect uh, in an effort to, in my opinion, hurt the governor. Uh, and there's no doubt that that's going to happen again and how the governor reacts to that. And in some instances, many people would say that some of the rea- some of his reactions to some of those instances have exacerbated the damage. Uh, but there's no doubt when the national media turns their attention, we're going to, we're going to get a real good state, uh, of the race, uh, and, and where, where it's going. I mean, listen there's no doubt that the two styles of the current governor, the former governor couldn't be different. Uh, Charlie Crist is, you know, the most Bill Clinton-esque governor that uh, I've seen as far as feeling your pain, remembering your name. I mean, they have very, that what made Bill Clinton um, a, a, a president that people wanted to, to get to know was just that empathy, right, he brought you in whether you were rich, whether you were poor, Charlie has that same quality. And when Charlie's out on the campaign trail and, you know, hugging and, and you know, holding babies and doing all that stuff and, and he's standing on stage and you see the two styles uh, differently, I mean, there's no doubt that, 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 um, that people are gonna see the different styles. I still in the back of my mind uh, say to myself, I don't know yet if Democrats have decided which person and ruin, I mean, which person, which style they want to go against Ron DeSantis because Nikki and Charlie are very different. Nikki has been the number one attack dog uh, on the governor where Charlie has played it much cooler. Uh, He's not, he's picked his spots, but, you know, Nikki hits the governor five times a day, seven times a day um, where, where maybe Charlie's only, it's only once uh, you know, Nikki has has when the school stuff or the mask stuff or, you know, the death count, every time that's come up, she's used that as a wedge issue uh, on DeSantis. And, and Charlie has played it a little cooler. And so, you know, I don't know yet if Democrats voters, not electeds, but voters uh, have decided on which tact they want uh, to go against the governor if they if they want you know, the person who's going to call the governor out every single second, the attack dog, then then that's clearly Nikki. But if they want to go more of the Joe Biden route, if they believe they're running against the Donald Trump of Florida and we need the Joe Biden of Florida, then it's clearly going to be, uh, it's going to be Governor Christ. I mean, it's, what do you think of that?
0: I think you're right. I just want to, I, I think that, I think the Nikki, attack dog you know thing just has also not worked to date i think that they're you know hey uh jared i need to jump off the podcast uh i've got a phone call coming in so i'm just gonna jump off i'm gonna let you wrap up i gotta take this for what we talked about earlier
1: okay well peter had to jump hopefully all's well with his wife and we'll we'll wrap this up so i i wanted to wrap it up uh with uh asking peter about um uh, a very personal issue, quite frankly, something that he's not discussed, something that I think a lot of people are going to be interested in. uh, And it, it, it really is a private issue. It's uh, I mean, Peter has had what it appears to be uh, an affair with Disney cruise lines. He he went on a cruise that was not Disney oriented. And I I don't know that Disney's aware that he did that. And I don't know how she's going to feel Uh, that he's cheated on on Disney Cruise Line but we'll we'll get to that next time appreciate everyone joining us and listening Uh, this is State of Emergency